Good morning again. This, as it turns out, is not going to be a sermon about Jesus, which I thought it might be when I, appro- when I first approached this very long passage that we heard Darren read this morning. Um, it, is, it is mostly not going to be a sermon about Jesus. Uh, there is some Jesus in it. But mostly it is going to be a sermon about Herod, the insane, self-important, opportunistic, incestuous leader who was king, like very small-time king, actually, when Jesus began his ministry. The Gospel of Mark is, uh, it tends to be known for its immediacy. Uh, Sometimes, even literally, we hear that word immediately over and over again in the book of Mark, which kind of propels it forward. It's got a the, the Gospel of Mark, more than any other, has this momentum. There's like one thing after the other after the other. Things keep happening very quickly. And even in the beginning of the Gospel, Jesus sends his disciples, and they, they heal, and they go about their business, and shake the dust off their feet, and it all just happens in the matter of like a very few verses at the beginning of that story. And then the story of Herod is like kind of just dropped right into the middle of that of the gospel story. The disciples are going about their ministry and Jesus has sent them. And then almost out of the blue, it's interrupted by the story of, of Herod and of John the Baptist, but mostly of Herod. Uh, and it, it almost takes you aback because not only in its suddenness, but also in its violence. And it's not even happening at the same time as what as everything else that's happening in the gospel. It is a flashback to something that had already happened before. So it does start with a meanwhile in the palace kind of a start. Meanwhile, like there are these rumors that are floating around about who Jesus could be. Jesus is it is it Elijah? Is it another prophet? Is it a new prophet? And that's where we hear about Herod because Herod's first thought is not, it's somebody who's already alive. No, it is, this is John the Baptist who I beheaded and he has come back to life. Seems like kind of a weird thing for him to think. And then we launch into the story about how John lost his head. Uh, I used to be a soap opera watcher. My soap opera of choice was Days of Our Lives. (laughs) Other fans in the crowd, I'm so happy to hear that. I don't watch it anymore, so. Uh, but every once in a while, I happen to catch, you know, when I'm in the supermarket, the like the soap opera digest, and it's like still the same people, <laughs> still the same people showing up. Uh, so I don't really have time to do that anymore. It started when I was in college. Probably also shouldn't have had the time, but I was a little more flexible. Uh, and this story reminds me of a soap opera, this Herod story. We have. Cheating, divorce, a scheming older woman, beautiful younger woman, uh, powerful men, lavish setting, high emotion and high stakes. And it actually it's a little unusual for the gospel to hear such emotion. We hear like words like disturbed, distressed, furious, delighted, and of course, killing off unneeded characters. Uh, no evil twins, but. <laughs> The Herod family, like, is a soap opera unto itself, and multiple people named Herod, so, kinda. 
So it's not really a soap opera, of course. This story is actually political drama, and it's set into the story of Mark so suddenly that readers are called on to wonder, so why, why is this story here in the gospel? Jesus and his cousin John are not preaching into a vacuum. Their, their preaching and their teaching is getting, it's getting the attention of political leaders who are, who are around them. Because what they're doing often is addressing oppression and power. They're noticing when leaders are, are not living up to the, to the standard that they should be. They're calling out injustice. They're calling out oppression. We just can't get away from politics in the gospel. Don't let anybody tell you different. I am sure that many of us in this room have been following the multiple strands of political drama that have been going on in this country over the past weeks, months, years. Eons. Eons. It's right. Yes, eons. And as I read this story of Herod and Herodias and Salome, which she's unnamed in this gospel, but this is the dancing girl in the story, I couldn't help but thinking that, yes, eons. La plus ça change. It will ever be the same. Drama is drama is politics is drama. It is remarkably easy for me when I read the story of Herod at a banquet. Like I can like I can literally imagine the artist's rendering of this as uh, Herod and his cronies sitting on the, di- the, the sort of a dais like this, and it's a big table. And Herod looks remarkably tan with a puffy yellow comb over. And we might also recognize some of the people seated next to him. Like, remarkably easy for me to picture that. (laughs) And the lechery in his face while he's looking at this girl dancing in front of him. Remarkably easy. Promising her even half his realm. Anything she wants. She's so beautiful. That smacked a lot to me of... If she wasn't my daughter, I'd be dating her. Because this woman, this girl, is his stepdaughter, but also his niece, and maybe like a cousin, like that family. This family, teens in the room, if a parent said to you, go ask your stepdad slash uncle to cut off my enemy's head and bring it to me, but first seduce him and get him drunk, would you follow through on that request? This might defy the boundaries of of manipulative behavior that I know the teens discussed in Sunday school last week. Uh, This is outside of the circle of grace. (laughs) Outside of the circle of grace. Uh, and then, how would it feel if stepdad slash uncle actually did that thing and presented you with a platter with literally a head of a person on it? Like, I can't even imagine such a thing. And yet, Salome seems to be pretty like, like, okay, here you go, mom. <laughs> like, it's fine. Uh, it, it just, like, I just can't with this story. It's incredible. It's incredible. 
And maybe it is a mistake for me to so closely align our current leadership with this incredible political story, this political biblical story. Perhaps this is limiting my, our view of the gospel. But when I see that corrupt leadership in the gospel, in the gospel story, like it, it's even a little when, when we had to repeat back, like, thank you for the, or what, what are the words we say? For this gospel story and the, and, the and the incarnate word that it reveals, and we all say, thanks be to God. It's, uh, it's a little bit like, like, really? Thank you? Not sure I'm thankful for this story. And yet here this story is in our gospel. So when I see that corrupt leadership in our gospel, I am called on to reflect on what is, in, what is happening here in our context, where I see both gospel and this story of corrupt leadership. This flashback to political farce, because this is a, the gospel is flashing back, is also a flash forward. There's a foreshadowing that's happening in the gospel itself. Because this political drama is not going to be the last time we see it in the gospel either, of course. Jesus will experience his own kind of political farce, political drama, uh, in just a few years. Because when leaders point, when, when our prophets point to the people in power, those in leader, and say, you are not following God's way. People like Herod get threatened by that. People like religious leaders get threatened by that. And being a disciple of Jesus will always be political. When we truly enact the gospel, when we get sent out into the streets to march, to write letters, to call our leaders, it's political. And especially when those leaders want the power for themselves, heads will roll. And that dynamic is playing out again and again and again for eons. And this whole Herod family is all and only about staying in power. When you look, and I, I, I sometimes forget, like this is a thing that I learned about in seminary. And I sometimes forget, like, who is king when and who is king where, and like... If, it's all complicated, and so I like I, li- I literally looked up Herod in a dictionary, this like a biblical dictionary this week, and you look at the family tree, and there are literally like lines like skipping over other lines because the generations are wonky, and because because Herod's not the only person who's like married to someone else in his family who's like cousins and stepkids and like it's so messy because they all just wanted the power to stay right there in that family and it's threatening when someone like John is pointing out the ways in which you are failing as a leader and he's telling his disciples and he's He's working people up about that, and, and people are starting to notice, wait, this king is not as good of a Jew as we thought, and he's, maybe we should demand a new leader, and, and that, 
you know, no matter how the spiritual stuff, like so Herod, it says, we hear is intrigued by the words that John is saying. Well, that spiritual stuff might have been sort of attracted to him, but there is no way he was going to let those, that, those rumors and all of that stuff continue. So those rumors, when they're flying about, Herod's first thought is, I thought that was done. I thought, I thought I put an end to that. I thought I cut off John's head, but is, it, is he back? And he's questioning. Because how could this be continuing? How could the questions continue? And yet this ministry, the ministry of John somehow has, even if it's John and not John himself, has come back to life. There is new life because the gospel cannot be squashed. When we hear about beheadings now, which we still do, it is as acts of terror meant to strike fear done by despotic and tyrannical leadership to keep those little people from fighting back, from rising up. And it may also be, as it was in John's case, a punishment for challenging power. And Herod, he might have couched this act in the oath he made to Salome. So he said to her, I'll give you anything you want. And she comes back with, cut off the head of John. I mean, he's, he's a king, a small-time king. But still, he could have said, well, I didn't mean that. No, he took this opportunity. He took the opportunity to say to his people around him, well, I, I had to do it. She asked me to. I had to. To also cut off, literally, the ministry that John was doing, the prophecies that he was making. He was threatened, and he was angry because prophet, what John was doing what prophets do. Just like Nathan in the Old Testament did to David when David was messing around. Said, hey, this is unethical. And it's not okay, and it's unjust. But it doesn't keep Herod from being fearful. He still holds that fear. Because others are thinking, this Jesus guy is a prophet. No, it's John. He's back, he he thinks. Resurrection. And it is resurrection. In a way, it's also foreshadowing the resurrection that will come. Both the death and the resurrection, because yes, this story is plopped, but we don't get to see what's afterwards. Afterwards, and we'll hear this next week, I think, Jesus goes out and his ministry just grows. He feeds a crowd of more than 5,000 people who have come to see him. So Herod can try. But word is spreading fast. Even though this is a story about terror and fear, I think in the larger context it's meant, for for Mark's listeners, and ultimately for us, I think it's meant to encourage. So long as there is corruption, there is a movement to oppose it. 
The early church needed that encouragement. They needed the encouragement to step courageously into the way of Jesus, to keep walking in the way, in the face of challenge and resistance. At the birth of the Black Lives Matter, Patrice Cullors, one of its founders wrote, Black Lives Matter provides hope and inspiration for collective action to build collective power, to achieve collective transformation. It is rooted in grief and rage, but it is pointed toward visions and dreams. Rooted in rage and grief, rooted in injustice and oppression. Out of that grows new resistance. There can be hope in doing the work together. That's one of the things I like about that book, We March. It really emphasizes we are in this together. And you see in the pictures more people and more people coming together. And it ends in hope. Uh, Rebecca Solnit, writing for The Guardian, about um, Patrice Cullors and the movement for black lives, said this about that. The vision of a better future doesn't have to deny the crimes and sufferings of the present. It matters because of that horror. And she talks also in the article about the lasting impact of movements for collective liberation, even though they might seem like failures at the time, or movements that we might have forgotten about that have like fallen by the wayside. She talks specifically at one point about Standing Rock which like, seems like almost like ancient history now. And this is even written a couple years ago. The pipeline wasn't stopped. But she says about it, it educated, it inspired many individuals and companies to divest of fossil fuels. It made fossil fuels seem like a riskier and less profitable operation for those of us who want to and would, might have not even thought twice about that. And, practically, the delay in the pipeline costs those folks a fortune. And she goes on. At its height, it was almost certainly the biggest political gathering of Native North Americans ever seen. Said to be the first time all seven bands of the Lakota had come together since they defeated Custer at Little Bighorn in 1876. One that made an often invisible tribe visible around the world. What unfolded there seemed as though it might not undo one pipeline, but write a radical new chapter to a history of more than 500 years of colonial brutality, centuries of loss, dehumanization, and dispossession. Standing Rock has been a catalyst for a sense of power, pride, destiny. It is an affirmation of solidarity and interconnection, an education for people who didn't know much about Native rights and wrongs, an affirmation for Native people who often remember history in passionate detail. It is a confirmation of the deep ties between the climate movement and indigenous rights that has played a huge role in stopping pipelines in and from Canada. It has inspired and informed young people who may have half a century or more of good work still to do. It has been a beacon whose meaning stretches beyond time and place. This is what collective movements do. 
when we gather and speak truth to power. Immediately after the death of John, his friends and followers gather what is left of his body and memorialize it. As the gospel continues, the ministry of John is amplified and continued through Jesus and Jesus' disciples. His followers gathering and continuing his ministry then again after his death. And here we are, still living and following and, uh, and acting in the way of John and Jesus. Because where there is oppression and corruption, people like us are called to step forward. Some of you bring opportunities and those voices and opportunities every week to name in the presence of this community, or you're working every day in your lives or for those things that you are passionate about. Speaking to power, making meaning, doing it with others. I pray that we continue to find hope in Jesus, in community, in joining together to be prophets to the powerful, and that we recognize when we are the powerful being prophesied to. And seek not to roll heads, but to roll aside and make way for change. I pray that we will be guided by the spirit of both John and Jesus, and the ones on whose behalf they spoke. Amen.